This morning, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Esther, not Ephesians, Esther chapter 2. We're finishing up chapter 2 today as we continue our study of the book of Esther. And if you have missed either of the last couple of weeks, I want to quickly catch you up on what's happening in this book. Remember that this book is being written during a time when Israel had just recently been in exile. So we have the great king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon who comes in in 586 BC and ransacks Jerusalem and drives the people out of Jerusalem into exile in Babylon. Well later another famous world power comes along, the Persians and the Medes, led by Cyrus the Great, and Cyrus the Great overthrows the Babylonians. And this happens in in 539 BC. And when Cyrus overthrew the Babylonians, he was a far more gracious king than Nebuchadnezzar, and he he allowed the Jewish people to go back to Jerusalem and begin life over again. And so these are the books that we have in our Old Testament, like Ezra and Nehemiah, which focus on the Israelites returning into Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls of the temple, rediscovering uh, God's law. So Ezra and Nehemiah focus very specifically on what happens to those Jewish people who returned to their homeland. And then we have what we call these post-exilic prophets. So after the exile, prophets. And these are the books in our Old Testament like Haggai and Zechariah. And then you have the historical books of First and Second Chronicles as well. And the prophets in this period's job was to communicate to the Jews that even though they were unfaithful to keeping God's covenant and God drove them into exile, he is still faithful to them. In spite of the fact that they were disobedient, God is always faithful to keep his promises. Now, in the book of Esther, we have a story focused on God's people who remain in Persia, which was once Babylon, now Persia. Those that chose to stay in Persia rather than go back to Jerusalem. And that is the historical context of the book of Esther. And of course, one of the big themes that we've been talking about in the book of Esther is this idea of God's providence. And God's providence is that God upholds, directs, disposes, and governs all creatures, actions, and things to bring about a sovereignly predetermined plan. And even though these Jewish people for various reasons, did not go back to Jerusalem, God's providence, His power to sovereignly uphold and direct and govern them is still on full display in the circumstances of the book of Esther, specifically over Esther and Mordecai. So that is what we are going to be focusing on this morning. We're going to read together, or not together, verses 19 through 23 of chapter 2. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people. 
as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Or your Bible might say Xerxes. It's the same thing. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So at the end of our passage last week in verse 18, the king gives this great feast for Esther. And it's a reversal of the type of feast that Ahasuerus gave for Queen Vashti. Because Vashti refuses to come before the king, Esther gladly accepts this feast on behalf of the king. And at the very end of the section that we read last week, the king says, after he gives a feast, that he's going to grant remission of taxes to the provinces. And he gave gifts with royal generosity. So, if you've ever heard the phrase before, if mama's not happy, no one's happy. It's a very wise advice for all of the men in the room. In Esther, the phrase is, if the king is not happy, no one's happy. But because Esther has gladly received the throne to become queen, Ahasuerus responds by throwing this royal feast and granting remission of taxes. So, today takes place in a moment when the king is very, very happy. And there's only one point that we have today, and that is this, that God works in the details of our lives. There's nothing earth-shattering about that point, but God works in the details of our lives, and this passage will demonstrate that. We're not given a lot of information as to why, in verse 19, the virgins were gathered again a second time. Because at this point, Esther has already been made queen. The beautification process is complete. She has been pampered. She has been selected. She is the beautiful one that will come to be queen alongside of King Ahasuerus. But just because she's queen in no way means that Xerxes would now be faithful to Esther. We talked about this last week, but Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, is really only concerned about satisfying himself. And so all of the women that were not selected as queen are still kept on standby in case he ever wants them to come into his presence to entertain them. So Ahasuerus, in this story, throughout the book of Esther, he is not a faithful example of what it is to be a one-woman man. But as the virgins were gathered here, the text tells us that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now what's implied here, this idea of Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, is that he had some sort of position within the empire, some sort of administrative role. We're not exactly sure what that is, but the king's gate was a large building that had administrative functions within the kingdom. And this authority that Mordecai had 
along with Esther, who is now queen of Persia, we're beginning to see how God is working out the details within the characters of this story to eventually, later down the road, save his people from mass extinction. Whether you know it or not, God is at work in the seemingly insignificant details of our lives. He is. If I look back over the course of my own life, I can see how God used particular circumstances and people to bring me to this particular place in time. If you were to think back over your life, the seemingly insignificant details of our lives, God often uses to accomplish His purposes both in us and through us. The story of God even bringing me to Dothan is a story of the seemingly insignificant details of life coming together so that I would respond after many, many months of stubbornness to God's call to come to this church. And I want to share just briefly a little bit about how all of that happened. So we had dinner with this new couple who had moved to New Orleans. Her husband was in town to do his residency and they ended up becoming a part of our church, and they were in the, the Bible study class that Ashley and I uh, kind of led at our church, and I was able to make a connection with them, and I was at the birth of their sons while they were in New Orleans, and one visit when I went to the hospital, I met the parents of the lady who gave birth. I'm trying to leave names out of it, even though y'all could probably figure out who it is. Uh, I ended up meeting the parents of the lady who had just gave birth uh, to these babies, and then one day, down the road, I'm on the playground with my kids, this lady's on the playground with her kids, and just, you know, we didn't plan to go there together, we didn't plan to be at the same playground at the exact same time with our kids there, and she had mentioned to me that the pastor of her home church was retiring, and that they would begin looking for a new pastor, and was I interested? And of course, publicly, you have to say, of course, but privately, in my mind, no way, Am I interested in this job? No way am I interested in leaving New Orleans. We had uh, had all of our children there. We had raised our family there. We had grown to love our church. And no, not in the slightest did I ever think that I would even entertain uh, coming to First Baptist Dothan. It was nothing against you guys, but I was just in my own sin and stubbornness. I did not think that at the time that's what God had for me. So then I receive a phone call from this gentleman on the pastor search committee who says, we'd like to come to New Orleans and talk with you. And in my head, I'm thinking, I'm still not going to go to this church, but I will get a free meal at a really nice restaurant <laughs> if I agree to meet with these people. I mean, seriously, this is what's going through my mind at the time. So they come down, we go to dinner, fabulous meal. They hear me preach the next day in New Orleans. They go on back home. They call me back a month later. Would you consider coming to Dothan just to view the town, because I'd never been here in my life, and uh, look at the church and meet with some people, sure. And in my head, I'm still thinking, all right, this is at least two to three more delicious meals and a road trip for me and my wife without our kids. So yeah, we'll come to Dothan. Still in my mind, all along thinking, there's no way that I will come here. So after my interview, we get in the car, literally in the parking lot, whichever direction it is, and... Ashley says, what do you think? Or I asked Ashley, well, what do you think about this church? And she says, I think we're supposed to go. And I started weeping. <laughs> like a baby. And she can attest to this. And it's, again, it's not because I didn't love you guys or love anything about Dothan. But I was just fully immersed in my plan for my life. 
And that plan for my life was to remain in New Orleans for the rest of my life. And so after wrestling and struggling for another month, they, they call me and they offer me the job. And I, I agree to come in uh, September of that year in view of a call. And I kid you not, I'm still thinking in my mind, they don't have to vote me in. I could do a horrendous job and I would still not be the pastor here. Now, I wasn't going to come and tank it by any means. But I kept thinking, if it's God's will that I'm not supposed to be the pastor here, then I won't be the pastor here. And so we come and we end up staying with the parents of the lady that I knew really well in uh, New Orleans years prior. Here's the moment when I knew that God had called me here. When I bit into that piece of pound cake that Mary Morris cooked for me, (laughs) there was no doubt in my mind that God had reoriented my life away from my flesh to shepherd the flock known as uh, First Baptist Dothan. Now, I share that funny story with, with you only to mention that in all of those trivial, seemingly insignificant details, God was orchestrating a plan by which me and my family would end up coming to Dothan, which includes that delicious piece of pound cake. So there are no details within our lives that God is not in control over. And as I was growing up, even through much of my younger adulthood, I I tended to think that God didn't really care about a lot of the small things. That God was only concerned about the big, major decisions in life. But as we go through the book of Esther, and as we learn more and more about God's providence, we realize that every single small little detail of life, God is at work in to bring himself glory, and to bring us in line with his will. It was my selfish and sinful ambitions about staying in New Orleans that prevented me from seeing clearly to begin with. And God was patient with me. And through his providence and through orchestrating all of these people that I met and all of these circumstances and that delicious pound cake that was baked for me, God had his own way of bringing me into a point of humility where I could respond uh, to his calling on my life. And we have other stories in the Bible like this. The story of Joseph in the Old Testament is a great example of God's providence. It begins in Genesis 38 with Joseph strutting around quite arrogantly in his coat of many colors, telling his brothers that they're one day going to bow down to him. And while that might have been a dream that he actually had, most commentators feel like Joseph at this point is incredibly arrogant and that even if he had this dream, he probably should have gone about communicating it a little better. So because of his arrogance, what do his brothers do? They beat him up, they throw him in a pit, and they eventually sell him off into slavery. So Joseph goes and he works for a man named Potiphar and his wife. And Potiphar's wife alleges that Joseph came on to her. So Joseph is eventually thrown into prison. While in prison, he meets a cupbearer and a baker. And he interprets their dreams. And the dream for the baker is that you're going to die... And the dream for the cupbearer is that you will be restored to your position. 
So the cupbearer is restored to his position. But we're told in Genesis 40, 23, that the cupbearer, even though he was supposed to remember Joseph and help Joseph get out of prison, that he actually forgets about Joseph. But later, Joseph is remembered by the cupbearer when Pharaoh is having trouble understanding why he's having his dreams. Suddenly, Joseph is called out of prison. He interprets Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh appoints him to second in command in all of Egypt. And after that, a famine strikes in Canaan, where all of Joseph's family lives. And because Joseph had the vision and the wisdom to store up all of the food in Egypt, Judah and the rest of Joseph's brothers travel into Egypt to find food for their family. And then, you know the story, they'll go back and forth multiple times. They bring Benjamin. He places a cup in Benjamin's sack. Benjamin is uh, forced to stay. Judah steps up in his place and says, I'll stay. And then eventually Joseph reveals who he really is to his brothers. And in Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says, As for you, you meant it for evil against me. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So if you look back over the entire Joseph narrative, 38 to 50, 37 to 50, whichever it is, the little details of Joseph's life are all building up to this moment in verse 20. When Joseph can now see clearly and say, I get it. God used all of these events in my life to bring me to this exact moment that when I could go and give food to save my people from hunger. If any of the details in the story of Joseph come in any different order, or if they don't happen, then Joseph would not have been able to say what he said in Genesis 50-20. God's providence orchestrating all of the seemingly insignificant details of Joseph's life for the good of his people. And in this story, within Esther, God is working out all of these seemingly insignificant details in Mordecai's life and in Esther's lives for the good of his people. Esther is taken from Mordecai. She experiences beauty treatments. She is selected as queen. Mordecai happens to be sitting right outside the king's gate where he overhears a plot against the king. So we're reminded again in verse 20 that Esther was told by Mordecai not to reveal her Jewish identity. And last week I said that this was a decision that I think Mordecai makes in great wisdom. However, if you read eight commentaries on Esther, you might find four that say Mordecai did the right thing by concealing Esther's identity, and you will find four that will say Mordecai should not have done this. He should not have lied. Now, here's what's tricky about Esther. One of the beauties of Esther is that the author doesn't give us always in this book clear black and white answers to all of our questions. And sometimes we have to live in the tension 
of what we talked about last week. The tension of, I don't know. Like, we didn't end last week with a great answer to the question of why Esther had to experience what she did. Ultimately, we know that God uses it for his glory, but in the details, we didn't come with this great explanation as to why Esther had to experience what she did. So you can make biblical arguments for Esther having concealed her Jewish identity, and you can make arguments for why Esther should not have concealed her identity as a Jew. And as someone who loves to live in the black and white, eats it up, soaks it up. Esther is a really hard book. Because the author of Esther doesn't prescribe for us throughout this story what it is exactly we are to do. So one commentator, Karen Jobes, in her commentary on Esther, says this. Talking about Esther concealing her identity. This episode from Esther's life offers great encouragement and comfort when we find ourselves in situations where every choice is an odd mix of right and wrong. Only God knows the end of our story from its beginning. We are responsible for living faithfully in obedience to His Word in every situation as best we know how. Even if we make the wrong decision, whether through innocent blunder or deliberate disobedience. Our God is so gracious and omnipotent that he is able to use that weak link in a chain of events that will perfect his purposes in us and through us. So even though we attempt to be as faithful as we possibly can to Scripture, we will come across decisions in our lives that are not clear-cut. And we simply do our best in those moments to be as obedient and faithful to God's word as we can and trust that if in fact we are wrong, that God is gracious and merciful even when we make the wrong decision. Now because Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, he overhears this conversation by the two eunuchs. Now we're not exactly sure what caused these eunuchs to be upset at the king But the phrase, sought to lay hands on, is an expression of assassination. So these two eunuchs were planning an assassination attempt against King Ahasuerus. Now we know that this particular assassination attempt fails. But we do have evidence from a Greek historian that Ahasuerus was, in fact, murdered in the bedroom of the palace, which he lived in 465 B.C. So even though this threat doesn't cost him his life, he later is assassinated. But with this particular assassination attempt, Mordecai is stationed at the perfect spot to be able to overhear what this plan entailed. And it's the perfect spot at the perfect time All orchestrated by what? God's providence. And in verse 22, we're told that he relays that information on to Esther. Now by Esther communicating this information on to the king, it accomplishes two things. Number one, it increases Ahasuerus' trust in Queen Esther. Because just because she's queen does not mean that the king takes her at her word. 
Okay, he's not really into a covenant marriage with Esther here. This is strictly physical. She is supposed to do whatever it is he tells her to do. But by Esther communicating what has happened, she is in fact increasing trust with the king. And then number two, by mentioning Mordecai, he now becomes a trusted ally. One that the king can rely on. Look at verse 22. It says, Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. So now Esther has established trust and Mordecai has established trust. And after the news is broken, the investigation takes place and it is confirmed that these two eunuchs did in fact construct a plan to assassinate Ahasuerus. And they're hanged on the gallows. In the NIV, if you have that version, it says impaled on a tree. So what's actually happening is, is these men were not alive and then were hung on a tree and then died. These men were dead and then hung on a tree for all to see. It's, it's a, a way to display shame in what they have done. This is an act of public shame. To put everyone in the empire on notice that can see that if you betray the king, this is what happens to you. So Esther has been honored as queen in chapter 2. And Mordecai has now been honored as a close ally of Esther and thereby one that Ahasuerus could trust. But the two king's eunuchs have been shamed. As you know, the Bible is full of honor-shame. It's an honor-shame culture. And so we see here in Esther 2, Mordecai and Esther, two Jewish people, being honored before the king, while Persian allies, who the king should have been able to trust, are shamed for all to see. And we're told it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles... In the presence of the king. That's really important. Normally acts of loyalty were rewarded immediately. But we don't have evidence of that in this passage. Mordecai does not seem to be rewarded immediately. Not every good deed leads to immediate rewards. Christians, as you go about doing good in the world, the only reward you might receive is in the new heavens and the new earth. You might not experience immediate Reward for the good that you have done. But Paul encourages us to continue on anyways in Galatians 6. When he says, let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And especially to those who are of the household of faith. While Mordecai's good deed isn't immediately rewarded in this passage, we know that down the road, as we continue this story, God will use him to save his people from mass extinction. So if you are in Christ today, please remember and know that God is using all of the events of your life for his glorious purposes And for your good, even if you resist him. Even in your own selfish, sinful ambitions, God can still 
orchestrate events in a way that can be used for his glory and your good. While I would not suggest that you go about it that way, God can still use all events in your life for his glory and for your good. And as Christians, if we're being honest, sometimes we're guilty of playing the comparison game. Why isn't God using me in the way that he's using my brother or sister in Christ as a pastor? Why isn't God using me the way that he's using other pastors in America or around the world? See, it doesn't really matter whether you're a teacher, a nurse, a doctor, a banker, an administrative assistant, a city employee, a custodian, whatever it is God has called you to do. God uses the insignificant details of your life to accomplish his purposes in the world. So our job as followers of Jesus is to simply be faithful and obedient to what it is that God has called us to do. So if you're a teacher, be a faithful and obedient teacher. If you're a nurse, be a faithful and obedient nurse. You might never become nurse of the year, but you can still be a faithful and obedient nurse in what God has called you to do. God will use us in whatever arena he has placed us in because that's where he wants us. And the gospel can be proclaimed in all sorts of various avenues of life. So for Christians, trust in the providence of God. For non-Christians, know that the very circumstances that brought you here today can be used by God so that you hear the good news of the gospel and respond in repentance and faith. So I don't believe if you're lost in this room today that you're here by accident. I believe God is orchestrating the events of your life for you to, in this moment, hear the good news of the gospel. And the good news of the gospel is this. It's the joyous declaration that God is redeeming the world through Christ. And that he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sin and trust Jesus Christ for salvation. Each of us has sinned against God, breaking his law and rebelling against his rule. And the penalty for sin is death and hell. But because of his love, God sent his son Jesus to live for his people's sake. The perfect, obedient life God requires and to die on the cross in our place for our sin. And on the third day, Christ rose bodily from the grave and now reigns in heaven, offering forgiveness, righteousness, resurrection, and eternal blessedness in God's presence to everyone who repents of sin and trusts solely in him for salvation. That's the gospel. In God's providence, it could be that you were brought to this place for this moment so that the Holy Spirit would do his work of regeneration and that you would respond in repentance and faith. The free offer of the gospel is open to anyone who will receive it. And today might be the day that God has orchestrated the circumstances of your life for his glory and your ultimate good, which is not the saving of your physical soul, but the saving of your spiritual soul. This is the gospel. So friends, as we close today, God is at work in the details of your life. 
even when you try through your own effort to mess up those details, in God's providence, he is upholding, he is directing, he is orchestrating all things for your good and his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we stand in awe of the way that you work. Our minds cannot even comprehend your greatness. We can hardly remember what we ate for breakfast this morning, and yet you know everything about us. You know every single event and detail of our life, every single person that we've ever met, and you use all of those details in your providence to direct our paths. So we stand amazed at the vastness of who you are. You are worthy of our worship. And we want to be faithful stewards of what you are calling us to do. Whether that just be getting up every day and going to work and loving our families. May we be faithful and obedient to do that. Whether you call us to leave our homes and go around the world to proclaim the gospel to an unreached people group. May we be faithful and obedient in that. God, the goal of our lives is your glory through our faithfulness and obedience. So help us to be faithful. We ask all these things in the name of your perfect son. Amen. We are going to now stand together and sing about God's faithfulness. So let's continue to meditate on this passage through the singing of the great hymn of our faith, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Let's stand together now.
Be seated just for one moment. Jim, if you would come and stand with me. This is Jim Head, and he's letting you know today that he wants to become a member of First Baptist Dothan. So let's give him a hand this morning. Uh, I've had an opportunity to talk with Jim about his story of conversion to faith in Christ, and he's gone through our Connect class. So I'm going to let him come and sit right here again. At the end of the service, he's going to stand back up. Come down and introduce yourself to him. Cindy, come and stand with me. John, you can come and stand with her if you'd like. As you guys know, uh, this is Cindy's final uh, Sunday with us at First Baptist. So first off, I just want to give her a round of applause for all she's done for us. And she uh, is not one for the limelight, but I want you guys to know how much we appreciate her. And like I said when she announced um, a few weeks ago, there's one thing I could always count on is that when our children came to church, they were going to hear God's word. And it doesn't matter, flashing lights, hoopla, whatever. Like what we want our kids to know is the word of God. Nothing else matters. And I could ensure you that every single Wednesday night and Sunday, Cindy was faithful to do that. So... Uh, A couple things I want to say. Number one, I want to pray over them in just a moment. Uh, This is a little small gift on behalf of the church to let you know how much we love you and appreciate you and John as well. John's obviously a huge part of her ministry as well. And uh, don't forget that next Sunday evening at 4 o'clock, we will have a reception uh, kind of retirement party for Cindy in the parlor. So please come back. And uh, she's also going to be standing up here, her and John, at the end of the service today, if you'd like to come and give them a hug as well. But please come back next Sunday night as we celebrate and honor her for her faithful years of ministry. Mike was an integral part of making everything happen at the Yeah, where is Mike? Mike, come on down and come and stand with Cindy and John as well. He has been a huge part of everything that they've done as well. So um, I'm going to pray for them. And then we'll be dismissed, and Jim and uh, John, Cindy, and Mike will be up here. Please come by and see them at the end of our service today. Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for Cindy and Mike and John and their faithfulness as a family here over these last almost uh, five years, it seems, uh, faithfully teaching the Word of God and serving our families so intentionally. And we pray for this new season of life that Cindy's going to be going to. Um, retirement. God, I know you're going to continue to use her. I know that she's not one to sit still. I know that you'll use her in new and exciting ways. So we pray for this transition in her life. We pray for John as well as he continues his work at the association. We ask that you bless him and his staff there. And God, we look forward to how you're going to continue to use this couple in the days ahead. So we thank you for Cindy's faithfulness, her love for this church, her love for our children, most importantly, her love for you and the word of God. So we ask that you bless this family. Thank you so much for allowing them to serve with us here so faithfully, and we look forward to continuing to celebrate her retirement in the days to come. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Amen. <laughs>